Hello and welcome to Season 5 of the Future of Film podcast. My name is Alex Stoltz and this is a show where we share insights and strategies from the pioneers, trailblazers and disruptors who are shaping the future of film. And today is a very special episode. When I started the podcast, which some of you may recall used to be called Film Disruptors, Jason Blum was always right up there in terms of the guests I was looking to bring to the show. And today he is on the show. Here's a little bit about him read from his official bio. Jason Blum is founder of Blumhouse Productions. He is a three-time Academy Award nominated, two-time primetime Emmy Award winning and a two-time Peabody Award-winning producer. Blumhouse is known for pioneering a new model of studio filmmaking, producing high-quality, micro-budget films and television series, and his multimedia company is regarded as the driving force in the horror renaissance. Throughout his career, Jason has relentlessly innovated and defied collective wisdom on the business of filmmaking. His low-budget approach, or micro-budget, is so much more than about just keeping costs down. It's about fundamentally reducing risk and retaining control. And a result of this, well, Jason has retained complete independence, which in today's landscape is quite a feat. Uh, And along the way, empowering artists like Damien Chazelle, Spike Lee, and building this incredible global direct-to-consumer and industry-facing brand. Another reason that this particular episode is special is that I devolve my interviewing duties for once to the brilliant journalist, industry commentator, and friend of Future of Film, Wendy Mitchell. I'm sure you'll agree, Wendy does an amazing job in asking the right questions and covering the whole breadth of Jason's work and perspective on film. Although, I'm sure you'll also agree we all want to hear more about Jason's ghost experience, having listened to this. And just finally, just to timestamp this, the interview was recorded in November 2020 for the Future of Film Summit. If you're enjoying the show or just want to find out more, there are a few ways to stay in touch. Firstly, you can subscribe for updates at the home of Future of Film. That's futureoffilm.live. Here you can check out all five seasons of the podcast and dig into other free resources like the Future of Film Report, the Future of Film Blog, and also check out the Future of Film Summit. So that's Future of Film. Dot live and why not just also hit subscribe on your podcast player of choice to ensure you don't miss another episode of the show we have some amazing guests coming up in season five so be sure to hit subscribe and check out futureoffilm.live so that just leaves me to say thank you for listening and please enjoy this conversation with jason blum and Wendy Mitchell, which was recorded in November 2020 for the Future of Film Summit. So, Wendy, over to you. Thank you, Alex. Uh, As Alex said, I'm Wendy Mitchell. I'm a journalist and film festival consultant. 
I'm very lucky that I get to be the one to moderate this keynote conversation with Jason Blum, who is, of course, founder of Blumhouse Productions, the company he has run for 20 years, uh, multiple Oscar nominee, two-time Emmy winner. He's working across film and TV increasingly. Um, you will know the company from genre franchises such as Halloween, Paranormal Activity, The Purge, this year's huge box office hit, The Invisible Man, that restaurant scene I will never forget. <laughs> um, films like Jordan Peele's Get Out, uh, Spike Lee's Black Klansman, Whiplash, another favorite. Uh, on the TV side, projects like Sharp Objects, The Loudest Voice, The Normal Heart, The Jinx, Good Lord Bird with Ethan Hawke this year. Um, have an amazing slate of streaming films with Amazon. Welcome to the Blumhouse. Um, you know, Into the Dark, horror anthology with Hulu. There's probably thousands more, but I'll stop there so we can talk. Um, so this is a busy guy. We are so thrilled that Jason Blum is joining us here at Future Film Summit. Thank you for being here, Jason. Thank you for having me. Can we start at the beginning? Um, I think one of the key selling points or key USBs of the company was that you started with lower budget films and you're still mostly at that sweet spot. So can you tell us why that made sense when you were getting started 20 years ago and why does it still make sense? Um, it, it made sense. I started really doing it after we had Paranormal Activity um, you know, I always, I always look back and think I was, I was lucky that I, that happened in my mid thirties and not my mid twenties. And I think if it happened in my mid twenties, I would have listened to other people. And the advice that everyone tells you when you make a hit movie is to make one that's more expensive. And I had had ex one experience making an expensive movie. And what I found for me anyway, the more money that is spent on a movie the less um, control you have and the more people are involved in the decision-making. And really at the end of the day, it's not as fun. There's just a lot of people whose jobs depend on the success of the movie. And I feel like if your job depends on the success of a movie, the creative choices you're gonna make by definition are not gonna be bold um, and interesting and different. They're gonna be you know, somewhat vanilla. So I still think that um, it's just much more fun making low budget movies because you can take creative risks. And when you don't, the, way, the biggest way we make low budget movies is no one gets paid up front, including us. And when you take the money out of the budget for yourself, you level the playing field with the financier. So if you've already been paid. I had always thought it was hypocritical to take a fee and then push the financier to do something they didn't want to do because you've been paid, they're out all this money. So if you really believe in what your creative opinion is about the movie you're making, you should show that. And the way to show it is to not take money up front. And then when you tell the financier, I want to cast Mary instead of um, Lisa, you have a leg to stand on because you're not going to make any money either unless your movie does well, right? You haven't already been paid. So, so I really believe, I, I really still believe that, 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 that the fun in this business is, is lower budgeted movies. And even if you're doing a bigger budget movie, I still think 
it's better to not take your fee up front as a producer or as a, or as a director even, um, or a writer, the above the line people. It's better, it's, it's more, you, you have a more fruitful and a better experience with your financier and a better product if you get paid when they do. Yeah, it's like you're an investor in the film. Exactly, you are, exactly, it's exactly yeah. that. You're investing in the movie. You're investing your time and your sweat equity in your own movie. When do you get paid then? Is it when the film breaks into a profit? Is it, you know, wh yeah. at what point it's, do you get paid? It's very, it's, it's, it's over, it's really easy now to, to negotiate those deals. You know, when we started, we don't do it always like this anymore because really we don't have to. We paid a lot of people a lot of money in back end. So people believe us when we tell them we're going to pay them. But in the beginning, before we had much of a track record, we just said, if the movie hits $50 million, you get 50,000. If it hits 60 million, you get 100,000. So the person was, and, and, and I used to, hopefully I'll do this again after COVID, but I used to write the checks and bring them to the FedEx. And when the box office would hit those numbers, I would, I would film myself going to the FedEx and sending the check to the whoever it was. And then I'd send the video to the person and say, hey, it hit 50 grand, it hit 50 million. I'm sending you a $50,000 check today. Um, one of the best checks I sent was, because uh, Get Out, Get Out, we, we sent, I think, a, you know, a, like a couple million dollars to Catherine Keener. And she wrote me this nice thing about putting her, her putting, putting her kid through school. She could have put a lot of kids through school with that much money. Um, but yeah, that was a good it was check. really fun. I, lo I love doing it. When we're paying other people, it means we're making money and that's a good thing. Great. I like that attitude. Um, what does low budget mean to you today? Are, are almost all on the film side under 5 million? Are they far below that, some of them? No, some of them are far, far below that. Most of them aren't. Most of them are between 5 and 10 million. Low budget to me for an original is 5 to $10 million. For a franchise or a, uh, a piece of IP like Halloween, I guess that's a franchise or something, a pre-existing piece of intellectual property, low budget is like probably more like 15 to 20. Okay. And what was Invisible Man? Invisible Seven? Man, like $7 million, yeah. Okay, amazing. Uh, we'll get back to that one in a minute. Um, what compromises or sort of mindset do you need to deliver really quality products at that budget level or do you not consider them compromises? No, but I'll, go, I'll tell you another advantage of low budget and why Invisible Man is so low budget is it, it's a great way to get a green light. And that's where I, really when I started, that was another reason that I did. I always was interested, clearly, you know, I was interested in making lots, we're making lots of different things, not just making one or two movies or shows a year. And, um, and a way to get financiers to say yes is offer them such an attractive price that even if they have 9 million excuses why they shouldn't do it, which they always do, they can't say no because it's so low. You know, I always wanted to do the monsters, some monster at Universal. I always, wa always wanted to do them and um, was never quite able to do it. And finally we said, look, we'll do this and we'll make it for $7 million. It's like, they have to say yes. And so that's another, that's another advantage. Um, you asked a question, uh, well, I forget, what was your question? Do you question? feel like you're making compromises or, or do you oh, not right. consider No, for our movies, I think, I think, you know, we don't make action movies. We don't make uh, comic book movies. Then you're, you are definitely making compromises. I think our movies get better 
when you when you take the bells and whistles away from the directors when you when you can't rely on special effects and stunts for scares the scares are much better like that scare at the restaurant the one you're talking about the invisible man it's so simple costs nothing to do and it's really effective and i think you know the directors don't like to hear me say this but i think you know when you when you have infinite resources it 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 actually makes even if you get to do what you want to do what you want to do is not as interesting as it would be if you were working for less money yeah. i mean but with invisible man i mean that seems to me on paper that could have been at least one of these 10 15 you know why did you know you could do it at 7 well, to be fair, seven was the net cost, right? We did it in Australia. So we got a big rebate, right? So it was really like whatever, 10 or so we got okay. that money. So the actual cash on cash cost was seven. So it was a little more, but the spend was actually closer to probably closer to 10. Okay. Thank you, Australian producer Offset, I believe. Thank you, Australian producer yeah. Offset. Um, you've already mentioned uh, financiers a few times. So I just wanted to ask, um, who are they? You know, not can I have their email addresses, but, you know, in general, do you have a group of private equity people you go to? Is it, you know, studio partners? Is it Amazon? Where are you getting? It's almost exclusively industry partners. It's the platform, the tech platforms, uh, the streaming platforms, the, 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 to a lesser degree, the, the, the kind of cable networks, and then obviously the studios, mostly universal for our movies, although we do do some work with Sony. Um, and a little bit with Paramount. Um, um, it, it, it's much, <laughs> using private money in the movie business is a big headache. <laughs> yes, unless you get one best friend. I know, you know, an oil man who finances a lot. If you could find yeah. one oil man, you're okay, but. You do, but yeah. suddenly the oil man loses his month, loses money two times in a row, and is like, "Wait a second, this business ain't so great," and they're gone. It's it's the more sophisticated an investor is for us, the better. And the most sophisticated investors are the industry people. And hmm. um, and with going back to Invisible Man, you know, just a remarkable return on that investment. And did you do you have a gut feeling when something is going to really take off? Uh, ne never at script stage, um, but uh, when the movies when the movies are finished, yes, it's not always right. <laughs> but I do have a gut. You know, I had a gut feeling that Happy Death Day to you, which was the sequel to Happy Death Day, I thought that was going to be a huge hit when it was finished, uh, and it and it turned out not to be. Um, so so it's not always right. But yes, when the movies are done. And we screen screen them a few times. I definitely have a feeling if they're going to work or not. I'm usually right, but not always. Okay. And do you do a lot of you know test screenings with audiences? Do you have a sort of trusted we circle do. that you show things to early? We, we do that too. We start with the trusting circle. We have a great group of filmmakers, you know, mostly scary movie makers who really help each other out and help us out. I'm very grateful to all of them. Um, Chris Landon actually is in that group. Uh, he is top of mind now because uh, his movie that we did, this movie called Freaky, opens tomorrow uh, here in the U.S. Um, uh, so we do, and then we do a lot of tests. We I do a lot of audience screenings. I don't um, take that much stock in the scores and the cards and all that, but I really believe for a horror movie, it's it's nuts not to screen it in front of an audience first and see where the audience is scared and where they're not scared. 
And if they're not scared, well, a lot of times there's a lot of small editorial adjustments you can make to make them really scared. So we do that with all of our movies. And how would you say in those 20 years that the markets, I know you do a lot of other things, but specifically for horror, how has that market evolved? Because I think you've evolved it. Um, you know, I think we had a sort of late 70s or 80s horror boom, and I think we have one now. Do you agree? How yeah, it I, I think, well, I think it's evolved in that, I think we have a lot, you know, have a lot, to, Jordan is really, we have a lot to, you know, I, to thank. Jordan is to thank for making filmmakers who never thought that they would work in horror and thought it was beneath them, look at the genre in a different way and say, hey, this is kind of cool. Like, if I can tell my story or show, tell, the, tell, tell the message that I want to tell using a scary movie framework, which is what Jordan did twice, um, that's something that's pretty compelling. So I think it opened up, I think the, 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 I think two things happened. I think Get Out was one. I think the second thing is that a lot of filmmakers are very attached to the theatrical experience and there's very little left that really still makes sense to show in a movie theater. And if it's not a tentpole Star Wars, Marvel, you know, or a big kids movie, a Pixar movie, then, um, then, then the other kind of genre is horror and so much else has migrated to television and streaming. So I think, I think those two things um, has made horror you know, more attractive for a different group of filmmakers. Not exactly the answer to your question, but it feeds to your question, which is that I also think there is kind of this renaissance. People are looking at horror in a different way now, and there's a big market for it. Although since I started in, with Paranormal, there, there, there were a, a, a two expansion and contraction. What happens is a lot of people start making horror movies and then they stop making money and then it contracts, and then a few make a lot of money, and then it expands, and it goes like this. And my, my kind of takeaway, we've always made about the same amount of movies through all those years, and my takeaway is if you make a good, scary movie, there's always an audience for it, regardless if it's in or out of Vogue. And what's in Vogue right now in terms of horror, do you think? My least favorite term, which is this term elevated horror, which, which is how people who, um, don't like horror and then they like a horror movie, they say, oh, this is elevated because I don't like horror, but I like this movie and it's a horror movie, which is the most ridiculous term ever. But, uh, but and now here I have, here I've used it. Um, but, uh, but I think, I think, I think the Vogue is like fancy horror, fancy horror, horror movies, which um, again, I, 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 I despise the notion of that. The whole point of horror is it's like, it's this, um, it's a, uh, it's like we're all kind of outside the system and saying, you know, we don't, we don't, you know, it's, it's like, a, it's like giving the finger to highbrow stuff. And so to suddenly put highbrow on horror is very annoying if you really love horror. Yeah, I think that term gets thrown around so much and it just kind of means a really good horror or a smart horror. And I think for them to get greenlit, they have to be pretty good. I mean, yeah, there's probably some, stuff being sold at AFM that's straight to video style. Elevated horror, often, I would say it also means, often means boring horror. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we don't want the boring horror. Um, and what, especially with a horror script, is there something that you, it crosses your desk and you read 
one line and you're just like, no, we've seen that too much. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. The opening is it opens in in a pandemic. I throw it out the window. The last thing I want to see right now is a horror movie about a pandemic. I'm living that every day. And I've got 29 scripts that have come to us about uh, pandemic horror movies. So there, that, that would be an immediate no. As an audience member, I say thank you because I want some distraction. Exactly. I mean, who wants to look at a Zoom again? We're all looking at Zooms all day. Although, host. Was great. Yeah, so Rob Savage, who you're now going to work with, who I remember when he started out doing no-budget films, you know, even a decade ago. Why did you like what Rob did with that enough to... Because Actually, because of exactly what I said, like, I couldn't imagine... like a, like a, we made, we made one too. We, we made a couple unfriended. We made a, we made two unfriended movies. Um, but, but now looking at the format that you and I are both looking at on our screens and making that entertaining seemed an impossible task. If I had gotten host as a script, I would have thrown it out the window and he did it. I thought it was incredible. Um, and so we're, you know, we're working with him on, uh, on a series of movies right now. Great. But he also, he did it sort of first and really well. Yes. And he's not trying to do it in, in mid-2021 to shoot it. You know, he did exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. The exactly. film of our time. You know, I hope everybody can check that one out. Um, yeah. You know, how do you find, you know, people like Rob, you know, how do you find talents you want to work with? Where do you find them? We find them... Um, you know, mostly from festivals, you know, we, we, I, we, we, we have people and I go to, I go to Sundance every year and, and other people at the company go to other festivals throughout the year. Um, and uh, we also find it from agents, you know, agents who are combing and I, I'll get a phone call and say, Hey, do you know about this person? Do you know about this person? And we look at their movies, but we look at um, a lot of low budget, you know, indie, often foreign language movies and and try and find you know new compelling voices we want to work with yeah i'm glad you brought up foreign language i wanted to ask you about that later let's do it now um you know the world is, is sort of opened up for more foreign language thanks to some of the platforms and other reasons um how much can you work abroad will will you do foreign language more in the future are you looking for we've more done some we've, we've done some in india we had a partnership with netflix um uh and we we've done we've done a little bit um uh and we'll probably do some more i've always i tried to we made this we tried to do one in china it didn't didn't go anywhere um i think there's a there's a blumhouse chinese scary movie without ghosts that would do very well. I don't know what it is and I don't know how to make it. So I'm interested in that, but it's not a main focus of ours. It's, 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 uh, it's, uh, it's tough to do. It takes a lot of time. And, and I just feel that's my, that's our, 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 the, the most important thing I have at the moment is time. And I've, I've spent a lot of time trying to do it. Like I said, we, we tried in Korea. We tried in China. Um, we succeeded in India, though it, you know it wasn't it wasn't terribly lucrative. So so it's not like a big focus of mine, to be honest with you. Um, and yeah, you mentioned time. 
there, it seems like there's a lot going on at one company. Um, how, you know, how many projects would you say you're across in terms of development, production, post, releasing at any given time? Is that 20? Is that 50? Probably more. I mean, if you counted development, it's, development. it's probably, it's, well, it's a lot. Um, uh, but if you don't count development, then uh, not, 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 as, not even as many as that. And, you know, with the company, it's almost 100 people. So there's a lot of people at the company. Um, and, you know, I think one of my strengths as a producer is I don't need to see my imprint on everything, on anything, on everything, on anything that we do. In other words, I'm very happy to do. If the thing is great, I'm very happy to leave it alone and let it be great. I think a lot of producers are unable to do that. They have to feel like some authorship somehow. I am not a, a frustrated director. I'm never going to direct a movie. I have no desire to. I would be a terrible director. Um, I think that makes me a good producer, actually. Um, Recognize, yeah. Yeah, and and so so I think. You know, I always tell our, I always tell our uh, directors, if I'm on your set for more than a day or two, uh, something is not going well, um, because I really think that's their job to do. So I, and, and also on the, on the film side, especially, you know, the, the directors have a lot of creative control. I think what happens actually is when you, when the director knows they're going to win the, the argument about any creative issue that comes up, it actually... What, what really winds up happening is we have a lot more input into our movies. TV is a different business for us, but into our movies than most companies because the directors don't have to take our advice. So as a result, they solicit us much more. What do you think of this? What do you think of that? It's a healthier conversation. Um, but to answer your question, if the, if the TV show or movie is going very well, I'm not very involved. I'm involved in putting it together. Um, hopefully not too involved during production and then post-production a bit and then marketing and getting it out there in the world, I get, get involved again. But if it's not going well, then I do get, I do get, I do get, you know, pretty involved in the day to day until like the ship is, the ship is back on track and then I, I pull back again. And by not doing well, do you mean maybe a creative element, the rushes aren't looking good, the dailies or... Yeah, if the movie isn't looking good and we've got to, we've got to, yeah, something like that, or there's a problem with an actor or an actress or a problem, um, or we're not, we're not making our days, we're going too slowly. Um, sometimes there are weather problems, you know, who knows, all different yeah. issues that come up. Yeah. And how often do you get some idea, like, let's, oh, I can't do the spoiler, let's do that restaurant scene, or, you know, are there ideas that you think of that then evolve into films that you hire the talent for? You mean, like, the seed of an idea? I, I never yeah. do that. You know, Brian Grazier does that. Like, he's great at it. Like, let's make a movie about pharmaceutical industry. Yeah. Um, what I do a ton of is I'll read a story, an, a, a magazine story, a newspaper story. I'll see a documentary and say, let's make a movie of this, or let's make a, a show of that. Or I'll read a book, let's make a show, let's make a movie of this book. Um, but I don't come up with general worlds and set my team, with one exception, with one exception. I don't come up with general worlds and set my team out to, to make something in that world. The one exception is that, um, you know, there's no better, uh, there's no better ingredient for a scary movie to succeed than source material that is real. So we're always looking, we're always on the hunt and looking for true ghost stories. You know, that's, that's something that we're always looking for. 
Okay. So have you seen any ghosts lately? I have not seen any ghost bites. I've not seen, I've not seen any ghosts, but I'm, but I'm, but I'm, but I'm very open. Actually, I saw one ghost once. I, I did see a ghost once. I did see a ghost once. A long time ago, I saw a ghost. So I have seen one ghost. Okay, we'll talk about that at the future of Ghosts Summit next year. I won't, I won't press you. You're listening to Future of Film podcast with journalist Wendy Mitchell in conversation with Jason Blum. If you're enjoying the show or just want to find out more, you can do all of this at the home of Future of Film, futureoffilm.live. Here you can check out all five seasons of the podcast as well as other free resources like the Future of Film report. We have a new edition coming very soon. So that's futureoffilm.live for all of your Future of Film resources and podcasts. On the TV side, again, you know, things work slightly differently in TV. Maybe the budgets are a bit different, the the timing, the packaging. Can you just talk about the TV ambitions? Because there's less horror in episodic. Not that you don't do some. But yeah, what kind of TV projects would you say are right for Blumhouse? There's much less horror. So in the movie side, it's 80% horror and 20% Whiplash, Black Klansman, other. Um, on the TV side, it's the opposite. It's 20% like our like our series for Hulu, Into the Dark, which is kind of pretty straight horror, and 80% Good Lord Bird or or other. And where we def- where we the lens that we look through on both horror and movie in the hundred percent on both sides is is it is it dark? Is there some underpin there, under underpinning of your story which has dark roots. Roger Ailes is very scary to me. Our worst, America's worst sin, obviously, slavery. Um, there's nothing darker than that. So, so that's, the, that's kind of the, the blanket that we use to define it. But you're right, straight horror on TV is much tougher. And, um, and so we opened up the aperture of what, of what we were looking for um, on the television side. And, and, and then to answer your question, like specifically, what are we looking for in TV? I would say in that way, um, what we always look for, which is like, is it, is it, does it feel new? Does it feel edgy? Does it feel subversive? Is it difficult? You know, I had this conversation with uh, one of the platforms yesterday about, about this, um, this podcast and we've, we've gotten scripts and we're, we're like on the precipice of getting a green light. And all the exact same conversations about this show came up about, about Good Lord Bird. You know, Good Lord Bird, people look back, you know, people now say, why didn't we do this show? But that was a very, very complicated show to say yes to. Um, I'm very grateful to Showtime for saying yes. You know, nobody else did. And, um, and, uh, and I think that's, that's in the DNA of what we look for is, 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 and it's, it's one of the funnest things about having a, a successful company in the entertainment business is that you can use the success of the company to get things made that ordinarily wouldn't get made. So that's a long answer to your question. No, I like <laughs> it. And right now it's about 50% TV, 50% film? Yeah, 50-50. And my time is about 50-50 too. Okay. And do you see it staying like that or could episodic grow? You know, I, I hope it stays like that. Um, um, it, it's just a matter of, you know, that's a, it's a bigger question. Like, are, is the, how much is the, are theaters going to come back? And, and, and I believe they're going to come back. And I believe 
people are going to go back to seeing scary movies in movie theaters. I hope, I believe that they will. Um, and as long as that continues, it'll remain to be 50-50. If, that, if the theater experience is really negatively impacted by COVID after COVID, then sure, we'll be doing a lot more television. Yeah. And, you know, how has this crazy pandemic year, you know, you, we're not talking to you in London, you know, I'm in my yeah. dining room. Um, how has the company been able to sort of cope with everything and, and how, you know, how has anything totally fallen apart that might not get revived or is everything delayed? There are, there's a couple of things that fell apart that, uh, that, that won't happen, but, but I think the bigger, um, you know, much more profound uh, answer to your question is that television is just not nearly as profitable or lucrative as movies, not even close. Um, and, uh, and so if you take the, we have a lot of, we've done just like, you know, we have four movies on Amazon and this movie on, and we're releasing this movie tomorrow, like I said, which is gonna come out worldwide. And we have Pivot as part of it. And if Pivot, and we don't know yet, we as an industry don't know yet if Pivot is gonna, is gonna how much Pivot is gonna make up for what we're losing in theatrical. But, um, but definitely, you know, that you, 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 you could make a ton of TV, but it can never be as, or very, very rarely be as lucrative as, um, as film because just because of the way that producers are paid. Producers in TV are paid exactly the opposite way of how I talked to you at the, you get at the top of this interview, you know, you can't get back end in a show for Netflix or a show for Amazon or a show for Apple. They, it's some calculated thing. You only get it if it's a miracle, you know, but basically you don't get back end. They pay you all up front. So for people who make really commercial things, shows and movies, that's terrible. You know, I'd much rather have nothing up front and have a piece of the success like we talked about. So for a company like ours, you know, we really rely on participating in the success of what we do. You cannot do that in TV. You can only do it in movies. And so in that way, it's had a, you know, it's had a, a, a big effect on our bottom line. And, and, um, and like I said, we can weather it. We've got another activity to keep the lights on. But, um, but, uh, but ultimately, it's, it's important that we go back to being able to release movies in theaters. Yeah. And are you shooting anything now or soon or shot anything already this we're year? Shooting a lot. We're shooting a lot of television, okay. uh, case in point. Uh, we're shooting a lot of uh, unscripted shows. And, um, and we're shooting our first movie uh, is a movie called Black Phones that Scott Derrickson, who we did Sinister with, is going to do. And that shoots um, uh, early next year. And we have... Um, three or four movies lined up to shoot in the first half of 2021. And they look like those have been done, assuming COVID is still with us. So it looks like those are going to happen where they had to be rejiggered and rebudgeted and work in a different place and all that sort of stuff. But they've gone through um, what they need to go through to be shot uh, in COVID. And we're going to, we're going to make those movies um, the first half of, of 21. So it's not just us. Obviously everybody thinks that, uh, that movie theaters will be back. All those movies are theatrical movies. Yeah. Um, do you have a gut feeling when 
cinemas are fully going to be back? Is that dependent on vaccine timing? Yeah, dependent on vaccine. I mean, we're we're hoping you know summer of twenty one. That's our our next wide release is uh, is the Purge, which we moved from from July of twenty to July of twenty one. So I uh, hopefully the Purge won't move again. That's what I hope. Um, I don't. Even though you're busy, I don't believe you're an epidemiologist. So we're not going to ask. No, I'm not. You have to. I can't. I have no thoughts on the vaccine except I hope we get one soon. Yes. <laughs> and I'll be the first in line. Yeah. Um, I mean, I know you've worked a little bit with sort of VR. Would you do more of that? Do you see that in your future or gaming? I, 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 I don't. I don't. I don't. I don't. I think it's a distraction to what we do. I think it's great. But I think, um, you know, I, we, I've... I kind of, you know, I, I changed my thinking about all that. I, you know, I, VR and, and I used to, you know, I was thinking about doing it. And what I found is that my time is better spent making television shows and movies. And I spent a lot of time in VR. It didn't, it didn't amount to much. Um, and I, I like VR. I have an Oculus. I do this, um, this, um, this cool uh, workout thing with it that, uh, that Chris Milk designed. Um, but uh but uh, but he, I, I think he, I, I'll leave the VR to him. <laughs> um, I forgot to ask a minute ago when we were talking about cinemas. Do you think these sort of changes we're seeing temporarily with theatrical windows? Do you think there'll be some movement on that when things get back to normal? I think there has to be. I think there has to be. I think we'll see as much a reduced theatrical window. I think we'll see a three week, two or three week window, and then we'll go to a premium VOD. And I think the result of that is they'll, they'll be a month, every, every weekend, there'll be 10 new movies in the movie theater and they won't last for very long, but there'll be many, many more movies, I think, released theatrically. They'll just be in a movie theater for a much shorter time. Uh, and I think, assuming the deals are fair, fair for exhibition and everybody else, that that's the future of keeping, that's the only way to keep movies alive in movie theaters unless all we want are $200 million tentpole movies. The only alternative, if we don't do the, that, that three-week window, yeah. is if we want to maintain a four-month window, is that when you go to the theater, you're going to see a Marvel movie, you're going to see Fast and Furious, Star Wars, and that's it. Like that, you're never going to see any other kind of movie. So I, 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 uh, I hope and believe we'll see a different um, theatrical model when we come back. Okay, and you think, you know, your friends at Universal are happy with that kind of idea for certain films? Well, they're leading the charge on it. Jeff Shell and Donna were the first people to make this deal with AMC, yeah. where they cut AMC into some of the downstream revenue on these on movies. And our movie tomorrow, Freaky, is being released under that new deal. We're, it's going wide, it's opening on 2,500 screens. Uh, and a lot of those screens are AMC screens. Um, and then it's going to be available to order at home in two and a half weeks. I mean, they, they were the authors of that deal. And personally, I hope that the other studios and the other theaters jump on the bandwagon because, because like I said, I think that's, I think that's, that's what's going to keep our theatrical business healthy. Now that's controversial. Not everyone agrees with me, but I agree with myself. <laughs> Always. Um, you know, what are there? I've been really enjoying the Welcome to the Blumhouse on Amazon, uh, partly because I'm a wimp, 
and I can't take totally scary movies. And they're just more like classic thrillers in some ways to me. Yeah, they're they're I mean, more. Do you think certain things work better on platforms? I mean, you've sort of said we want to go to the cinema and have the jump with the popcorn and all that. But what do you think works best on platforms? Yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, in the positive the the category of streamers, there's a bunch of movies. None of those movies would survive in a theatrical marketplace. And now they they did right, they did very well. People saw them, Amazon's really happy with them. They got a big audience. We're gonna make four more. And that's great. You know, there's a, there, what, what the streamers have allowed for because they reach so many more people um, is that you can make different kinds of movies. A theatrical scary movie is different as our movies are. They're still like pretty, narrow guardrails and you have to stay inside those streaming movies the guardrails come off you know you can really do all different kinds of stuff so in that sense um making those amazon movies and making movies for streamers is fun because you don't have to um have a concept that has to be sold in 30 seconds or it won't work you know and that's um that's fun as a producer and i i think there's not enough attention been paid to the fact i think i've got my fact right that none of these first four for Amazon is directed by a white man. So, yeah. well yeah. done. Um, Thank you. How, how do you think about inclusion, inclusive voices in front of and behind the camera? Um, yeah, not a single director looks like me of our Amazon. So when we were doing the Amazon movies, we were thinking about doing 50-50 uh, directors from underrepresented groups. And we said, you know what, let's do it 100%, which, I, which I'm really happy that we did. And we've, we've actually, we haven't done 100% underrepresented directors, but we've, we've, we've been, we've had a good track record doing that. We've had a good track record doing that because that's our audience. You know, our audience in the U.S., our theatrical audience is less than 50% Caucasian. It's more women than men. So I really believe that you want the storytellers to look like the audience they're telling stories for. And, um, and so that's what we have done and will continue to do. And how do you know that audience so well? Are, are, do you have data on them? Is it oh, yeah, you have very good? Yeah, very good data on um, on from uh, from Fandango and from 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 ticket sales and also from exit polls. You get very, 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 very good data: a percentage of women, percentage of men, under twenty-five, over twenty-five, black, Hispanic. Um, um, white, you get a, you get a, you get a full breakdown. And it's really interesting to see how the audience demographic, um, breakup differs from movie to movie. Um, but overall, like I said, um, you know, it's less than 50% Caucasian going to see the movies. And I love the percentage of women. So we know ladies. The women, women is, women is, is pretty generally 55, 45, 55% women, 45% men. Because typically for horror movies, young girls kind of drag the boys to the movies. Good, good on men. Ladies, exactly. ladies choice. Um, you know, 20 years on, you just said uh, Blumhouse employs 100 plus people. Um, how do you stop your, your company from becoming a dusty old studio that's sort of set in its ways? You know, the sort of upstart becomes the establishment and how do you keep it fresh and the right attitude in there. Yeah, I think I, it's, it's something that I, um, I, uh, the main way that I do it is I think about that all the time. 
you know, cause I think, I think, I think, you know, and I'm always quick to tell everyone like, we don't have, as soon as you say like, this are the rules, we have a general model, but the, but the, the specifics, which were boring for your audience of what we looked, what we called low budget and what the rules were when we started and now are totally different. And I think it's really important to never say, okay, we found something that works, let's stick to it. Like we always got to say, we always got to push and bend the rules a little bit. I think that also goes with the movies. Like after we did Get Out, uh, I, I was like, I don't want to do it. You know, every script said, this movie is like Get Out. Do you want another Get Out? It's like, no, we, we, that, that movie happened. You know, so I think it's really important not to look back at the successes that you've had and try and repeat them. And I'm always very... Um, emphatic about that also with, with all our, all our executives. Um, and I like to have, um, you know, we have a lot of young people at the company and they have a big voice at the company. Yeah. If, 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 if I don't, I, I have veto power about what we make and what we don't make, but I very rarely use it. And there are definitely, you know, a bunch of times where we've made things that I didn't think we should make and I was wrong and I'm glad we did. So I'll continue to, to think that way. Um, but I think you have to be vigilant, um, or I, I am very vigilant about not like sitting back, copying what we've done before. And I think if I start to do that, it's time to do something else. Okay. And, you know, we were talking about the data. How much does the company as a whole use data? Do you use algorithms? Uh, we, not much, you know, I don't believe in using data, uh, for creative decisions. I, I think that it's, um, I think it's not good. You know, I think it leads to bad um, movies and bad shows. So I don't, I don't, in that way, uh, I, 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 I am very anti-data in terms of making, deciding what movies and what shows to make. I think the reason that so many movies and shows are bad is because people use data to decide what to make. And slightly related, but not quite, but how important is marketing um, I mean, there's so much noise out there, not just go see this film at the cinema, but choose cinema over this. Um, you know, what does it take to cut through the noise now? And it's not just a good film, it's marketing it, the good film. Marketing, I would say, is at least 50%. That's how important, at least 50%. It may be more. If you talk to a marketer, they'll tell you 75%. You talk to a producer, they'll tell you 25%. But I think marketing is... is, is it, it, the minimum is 50% and it may be more. It is, um, for theatrical, it's more. For theatrical, it's more. Um, and it is, uh, it is incredibly complicated. It's an art in and of itself. Um, I think in some way, marketers don't get enough credit um, for how creative they are. Um, I think especially about like, by the marketing team at Universal that has done, we've had, you know, success after success after success. And I'm not saying this to like, you know, I, I don't need to get any points with them. But if you look at the campaigns over the years that they've done for the movies, they're original and cool. And, and they tell a whole story in, in a trailer. And, um, and it's crucial. And uh, it's actually frustrating how important it is. You know, we want to think that Mark, if you make something great, people will find it. They won't, you know, they just won't. So it's, it's, it's depressing how important it is, but it's really important. Yeah. 
Um, it might be naughty. If you look back over the past two decades, is there a film that you thought was, you know, one of your best, absolutely amazing, that just didn't click with audiences and any idea why? Yeah, I think I said it. The sequel to Happy Death Day, Happy Death Day for you. That was one. But there have been there have been a there have been a handful of movies like that. Let's see. Um, that's the most recent one. Oh, Gem and the Holograms. I love that movie. No one, that, that one did not connect. Um, um, what other ones? What other ones? Uh, we don't have to keep you on the spot. You've, yeah, I mean, it's so, it's so sad. I'm glad I can't come up with others because I put it out of my yeah. mind. But there are definitely more. But the most recent one, is is Happy Death Day to you, which I really, which I, which I really, uh, I'm still smarting from. Yeah, and when you have something that doesn't hit, you know, on paper, Gem and the Holograms looks like every girl's gonna want to see it, every mom group is gonna want to go. It's got music and fashion. And, um, what do you learn when something doesn't hit? Can you learn, or is it just a case by case? Oh, one oh, by one? oh, oh, you can definitely learn. But you have to take your learnings with a grain of salt. You know, that's that's the thing. I mean, I think that's if my job boils down to anything else, it's like it's like taking all the information. It's, it's back to your question about data. Like you take the information, you take the things you've learned, you do all that, then you make a decision. But sometimes, you know, sometimes the decision is 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 going against what you may have learned, and that's that's kind of you know, that's what you have to do or anyone in my position has to do. Um, um, but we always look at the movies that have underperformed and at the, at the company we spend, we spend a couple hours actually going through of it under, why do we all think it underperformed and how do we make sure it doesn't happen again, which is impossible because as long as we're in the business, we're going to have movies that underperform and shows that underperform. Um, but, uh, but you can always learn a ton from your mistakes, just like in any business. Um, we're going to have to start wrapping up soon. I wanted to ask, what have you been watching in lockdown? Well, that's a great question. Last night I saw this, this documentary called The Scheme, which is on, which is on uh, HBO Max, which is about this, this, uh, this guy um, who was clearly innocent or pretty innocent. And he, was, he worked in basketball and, and the FBI went crazy and arrested him. And he was, he was an amazing, amazing fellow. So anyway, I highly recommend it. I've been watching Seduced, um, which is this thing about the Nexium cult. Oh, yeah. You know, which, uh, which, uh, which, uh, which was a great documentary, which I love. I just watched Chicago 7. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I hadn't seen The Wire. So I watched The Whole Wire. I watched The Whole Thing from beginning to end, which was, which was, which was, which was as good as people as, as said it was. I, I don't know how I got this old and never saw it. Um, but I I've actually had a wire episode one last week. Did <laughs> so, you? Yeah, I feel wow. like a times, but now I have time. I got time. You've got a lot. You've got a plenty of time. The yeah. second season's better than the first. Okay. <laughs> um, but I've been I've been watching a lot. I've actually been keeping a list of what I've seen during COVID. It's getting very long. Yes aren't they all but yeah what a great time to be a storyteller people are watching um you know as you know alex this whole conference is future film um you do more than film so i would like to ask you as our final question what excites you 
about the future of storytelling? Um, I think what, what excites me about the future of storytelling is, is uh, you know, tech is done terrible things and great things for the future of storytelling. But if your question is, there's a lot of positive things, which is that um, the distribution is better and cleaner and that's allowing for money and, and there's a demand like never before in history for, for, for stories. And that allows for more stories and different types of stories. And, and I think eventually better stories, I hope. And, um, and so I think the changing, I think the, the short answer to your question is kind of the changing technology, the different theatrical windows, the different way we watch, we consume television, I think ultimately will, um, will benefit storytellers. And that's, uh, that's a good thing. Great. Um, I would really like to thank all the audience that's joined us for this conversation. It's just been so fascinating um, to hear such an original thinker um, working across all these industries. And what you've achieved is just amazing. And I know it's going to be some cool stuff coming up. That's also the exciting thing. Um, I've still got two Welcome to the Blumhouse to watch. Oh, good. And good. another four. So thank oh, you good. Those. But thank you so much. We know how busy you are. Um, Jason, thank you so much for joining us. And, you know, stay well. We hope to see you in London next year, maybe. And, yeah, stay creative. Well, thank you. Thank you for talking to me. Sorry I couldn't be there in person, but this was really fun to uh, chat with everyone. And, uh, and hope, like you said, next year in real life. So we will definitely be trying to hold Jason to that for the summit later this year. So stay tuned on that front. I really hope you enjoyed that conversation between Wendy Mitchell and Jason Blum recorded for the 2020 Future of Film Summit. Listening to it back myself, I was still incredibly inspired by what Jason shared and I hope you found it likewise if you want to find out more about Jason or any of the other guests on the show you can do all of that as a reminder at the home of Future of Film which is futureoffilm.live so that's it for this episode I'd like to say thank you again to Wendy for hosting and as always thank you to you for listening and look forward to welcome you back here on the podcast very soon